This is the launch station, the only place you need to look for all things onboarding, implementation, and customer success. Tune in for insights from industry experts every week. Hello and welcome to the launch station. Most SaaS companies which are selling to mid-market or enterprise sort of go through a similar journey on the customer onboarding and implementation front. They're first in denial, right? They say, my product's really simple and you don't need anyone to help with onboarding. And then they have their sales engineers or support teams do it. It then moves to customer success and finally moves to a full-fledged professional services team. There's also implementation partners in parallel, but a PS team inside the company goes through its own journey to maturity from doing free work to charging a standard package fee to then actually measuring profitability, utilization, and using better approaches to offering their services. Today's episode is about packaging your services and creating the right offerings for your customers. Our guest for the day is Chitra, and she's gone through this journey multiple times. She's done it at companies like Tipco, LinkedIn, Isla Networks, Jovio, and currently at Couchbase, where she heads customer success. So welcome to the show, Chitra. Thank you, Sri. Thank you for inviting me. Good to be here. Perfect. Okay. We are going to start with a fun question that we have asked a few people before. If you didn't have to worry about a budget for CS, then where would you spend it and what would you do differently? That's an excellent question. I would spend it on three things. Hiring the best possible team members, investing in their CS training, and getting the best tools to optimize and scale customer success services and operations. I guess it's always interesting to see some new perspective on this one. So you would invest more on your team, on services, operations, and tooling so that it's easier to scale as you serve more and more customers. Uh, many of us are used to throwing people at the problem since you know CS ops and tooling is generally missing. Chitra, before we go on with more questions, it would be useful for folks to know a little more about you. So the last time we chatted, we spoke in detail about your stint at Tipco and how that set the path for your future. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. So my work as, at Tipco as the member of the professional services team was my introduction to the services industry. Tipco had and still has a big professional services group. I think there are thousand plus now. And within that group, I was part of an elite subgroup called the Global Business Architects, which included some of the most senior and experienced members in professional services. I was actually the youngest and least experienced member of the team at that time, uh, which had most of the people with at least 15 to 20 years of experience. So uh, it, was, it was great from a learning perspective. And we were the designated firefighting group. Uh, and as part of that group, I got exposed to a range of customer engagements and activities ranging from both pre-sales, like doing POCs or tech pitches, to post-sales activities like building solutions, reviewing architectures, performance reviews, and being a long-term trusted advisor to my customers. And during the course of my career, I also got exposed to a wide range of customers in verticals like finance, insurance, gaming, high-tech, pharma, retail, and so on. And as I and my team members were working with all these different customers in different business domains and use cases, we started noticing some repetitive patterns of requirements, use cases, modules, and so on, which led to the thought that we could potentially extrapolate those common requirements and build reusable and deployable modules, package them, and then offer them to our customers 
versus building them out individually for each and every customer. So this, this uh, mechanism is a win-win for everyone. It was cost-effective for the customers and it offered a path to standardization. And for those same reasons, it was good for us as well. And that was my introduction to designing, building and launching service offerings. And as they say, the beginning of many, many more. And when I joined LinkedIn as part of the technical consulting team there, uh, which was part of the overall customer success org, I leveraged my TIPCO experience to similarly help launch and manage customer success delivered services to augment our existing product offerings. And these modules were completely owned and managed by the customer success and services team with no involvement from the pro formal product team. And they were hugely successful because they were actually helping plug um, a very important pain point and gap for the customer. And in fact, at least one of these services, as far as I know, was later absorbed into the core LinkedIn product. And also sometimes launching features or new functionality as service modules can provide a good test bed to assess demand, value, and reception before formally making them part of the core product offering. That sounds like quite a journey, Chitra. When did launching consulting services come into the scheme of things for you? So uh, when I joined the IoT industry, working for an uh, IoT platform as a services startup, it was the stepping stone to some really interesting times. Um, I got into internet of things at a time when it was cutting edge. I mean, it's still cutting edge, but especially so at, at uh, that time. Uh, but it was also relatively brand new. And many companies, although interested and wanting to adopt IoT, had no idea how to go about it. So what we ran into many times was that customers or prospects were really keen to be IoT and enabled and, and signed on to our platform. But once that happened, they did not have the best or complete knowledge or awareness about how to maximize success with this new technology. And that was our motivation to build our consulting services offering. That's pretty useful and insightful. Can you sort of talk about when is the right time to start thinking about consulting services, packaging or professional services offerings or productizing them in some way? I guess as a startup, you're always firefighting on one side and are neck deep in your current implementations. So it's sort of useful to understand when we should zoom out and focus on packaging your offerings. Right, right. So, you know, speaking from my own experience, our full spectrum of consulting services was really born to serve the needs of helping our customers during every step of their journey with us, starting, starting with onboarding. So similarly, the customer's end-to-end -end journey or life cycle with your products and company should be the starting point for designing any consulting or services packages. Since think about it, right? I mean, your services are there either to augment your existing product offering or to bridge the gaps in your deployment processes or your customer's own knowledge gaps. So you really need to have a clear understanding of what those gaps are. And in fact, our consulting services had packages ranging from creating awareness, uh, like doing discovery workshops for our customers or prospects to help them map IoT to their business needs and create a high level proposal to offering full-fledged design and development and testing services, culminating with you know, life cycle and ecosystem planning and expansion. So really you should look at your consulting services as a tool that helps you scale 
and that helps you uh, do a better job of setting your customers up for success. So it's not a chore, it's not an irritant, it's an asset. Nice. I think it's very interesting that you would actually do workshops on awareness around the problem domain itself. I've not seen that before, but you know, thinking about it makes a lot of sense to do it this way. You know, I've been part of selling an evangelistic product before, and we were trying to do the awareness as part of our sales pitch. And it could have been much more impactful if you know we did this as a consulting exercise separate from our product sales to say, hey, let's help you understand where you are in the journey and what you should be doing next. And probably once they come around to it, it might have been easier for us to go and sell and implement our product. Right. And sometimes, and it depends on the industry, right? Like when we offered consulting services for IoT, um, like I said, a lot of customers were aware about IoT. They wanted to become IoT enabled, but they did not have a very clear path to what that would involve. And that's where our uh, awareness services and and our discovery services and so on um, came into the picture because uh, the champion, the person who actually signed the deal or brought the IoT platform in might have a very good understanding of what it is. When you are building a product in this case, especially, it's not just the engineering or the product team that's involved. Uh, sales would have to be involved, marketing would have to be involved, support would have to be involved. And how do you, you know, create awareness um, across the spectrum of all the different functional groups, which have to work together in order to ensure that the customer is successful. So there was a very clear need and that is what led to creation of um, our, our broad spectrum of consulting services in, in that case. But uh, depending on the use case, I think in any industry, uh, it's important for you to identify what those gaps are, what those needs are, um, and see if there are uh, ways in which you can plug them through your service offerings. Makes sense. Chitra, one question that comes to my mind is, how do you think about investing in your own consulting and professional services offerings versus investing more energy on building a partner network to do that on your behalf? Like, what are some parameters that will you know make you go either way? to decide where to invest more and where to focus more? That's, that's a good question. And uh, I think, so well, I should add that uh, for all the different companies that I worked for, although we offer um, and offered our own services, we also worked very, very closely with our partner network. I think partner network is really helpful for you to scale, right? Uh, to regions where you don't have a presence, uh, to different technologies where you don't have a presence. Like uh, for example, when we started our consulting services, uh, we offered limited scope, uh, especially on the development side. We only used to offer architectural reviews and performance reviews best practices information and so on and so forth. But when our customers wanted us to do long-term development, we used to bring in our partners to help with that. So we had a very strong partner ecosystem and we worked very, very closely with them, sometimes even on a rev share model so that we could complementary, we could offer, offer complementary services. So I think, you know, even, even if you have a pretty robust professional services uh, team, it, it always helps to work with partners to, to expand and enhance your footprint. Okay, that's good to understand, Chitra. What are some tips and tricks you have around how you price these offerings? So the pricing depends on the type of offering, right? So if you're offering a deployable module, um, 
like an out of the box deployable module. Uh, then the pricing for it could be per user or per deployment, uh, whatever makes most sense. And a good way to look at it is how much would it cost to build that module every time for a customer and use that as a metric to price the value for that particular module. And of course, there are other advantages like using a standard module promotes enterprise-wide standardization and plug and play capabilities and, and so on. If you're pricing a consulting workshop, then it can be priced based on the number of hours uh, or days or uh, the, the number and seniority of resources working on it. But of course, the service packaging should focus on artic articulating the value and deliverables when discussing pricing with the customer versus uh, the resourcing cost. But, but those are some parameters that you can, you can look at to price uh, your different offerings. Sitra, so you had also mentioned in a conversation we had in the past about how some of your offerings on the services side were eventually productized. I'm curious to learn about some of those examples and you know how it really worked out. Yeah, sure, absolutely. When I was part of the technical consulting team in the, in the HR tech space, one of our service offerings uh, that was extremely popular was uh, this, uh, this offering called job wrapping. When companies post jobs uh, online, a lot of these different processes are very, very manual where they basically have to go and they have to fill this form and then click a button and the job gets posted. So, which is fine if you have like uh, one or two or 10 jobs, but uh, that becomes very, very tedious when you're dealing with thousands and thousands of jobs. And we actually created a service that addresses that need where you could automatically scrape websites and apply certain parameters and get those jobs posted. And that was, you know, uh, a, a great gap that uh, we identified and um, we filled this gap. The services team actually built this offering originally by partnering with external partners, uh, actually based out of India, interestingly, and uh, completely owned by services, absolutely no product involvement, was hugely successful. And again, alluding back to the model that I had referred to, use it as a test bed, right, to see the value that the customers is getting to see the reception that your offerings are getting. And then eventually this particular feature was rolled up into the core product as part of the core product offering and taken off the services plate. But I think it's, it's a great example of really the power of having your own services offerings, both as a differentiator for your customers, but also as a, an extension of the core product features of your company uh, in the future. All right. I'm wondering if the code base developed by the services team was actually reused and pulled into the product or did they just say, hey, okay, we know this works, but we're going to go and build it from scratch again. Uh, they actually, uh, they used, I think, a portion of the code base, but they used different tools and, and they rebuilt a certain section, uh, really a section of the functionality uh, by themselves. Okay. Wow. That's amazing. Great to see the kind of impact that would have had both on your customer as well as on your team when it eventually became part of the core product. It must have pushed them to you know, innovate a lot more, I'm guessing. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and, and we did. I mean, again, throughout the course of my career, I have been a big proponent of um, 
providing uh, consulting services to our customers as and when we identified a need. Uh, because you know you are your customers' best advocates, and when you go and you work with different customers uh, across uh, different business domains, the perspective that uh, the customer success organization uh, and the customer success managers bring back to the table is tremendous. And uh, to use that perspective to be able to actually build something uh, concrete uh, that your customers can use and get value from, and hence by association, your company can get value from. Uh, as I said earlier, it's a win-win for everybody. So Chitra, do you have a playbook on how to make consulting services more sustainable? Well, you know, there are certainly some best practices to keep in mind when thinking about building uh, your services uh, stack, including consulting services, like align the services closely to your customer journey, like, like we discussed. Identify the gaps that the services can fill and offer the services as a differentiator and build as much structure into your offerings as possible, like number of days, deliverables, number of sessions, templatized worksheets, presentations, and so on. Now, this might be more work upfront, but it would yield valuable benefits to ensure standardization and scale. Also, incorporating structure helps with scaling the delivery by training maximum members of your team to deliver these trainings. Because if you are just dependent on a handful of delivery experts, you would create a bottleneck and have issues scaling your services. Ideally, all or most members of your services team should be able to deliver at least a subset of your service offerings. Got it. So here's another question I've sort of been confused about. In the early journey of any SaaS company, I'm guessing they want to showcase most of their revenue as a subscription revenue for the product. Because if you're working with VCs or trying to go public, you don't want to show too much of revenue on the services side because your you know, subscription revenue is what gets those higher multiples. Have you seen any sort of conflict around this in companies you worked at? Uh, do you believe, you know, based on your experiences, have you seen like business leaders think the right way about this? Yeah, I think it is important, uh, you know, not to have services for services sake uh, and have a good recognition uh, at a leadership level of what they bring to the table and why you need them. Uh, if your product is very simple, you, li you likely don't need services, right? We don't need services for using WhatsApp, for example, uh, and, and all the different varieties of apps, consumer apps that we have out there. But if your product or customer journey is complex, or if you are in a new space where customers do not have a lot of knowledge about the domain and have a hard time justifying value, then your services play a big role in converting prospects to customers or in maximizing the success of your customers uh, by getting them to use your products and by you know, really reducing the time to value and time to market. Because at the end of the day, your services team knows your products the best, or, or I should say your internal services, engineering product teams uh, know your products the best. And as experts, they are in the best position to help your customers maximize their success and derive value faster which has a direct association to your own company's success and valuation. So the focus should be on maximizing efficiency and scale uh, versus uh, maximizing or focusing too much on the service revenue. And that is something that uh, I think uh, the leaders find it fairly easy to get on board. 
Okay, that's good to know. Uh, have your teams faced pressure from customers or sales teams to not charge for services? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends, right? Uh, yeah, many times, especially if customers um, are not used to or they haven't seen the value from your service offerings, um, might push back on, on paying for services for, for budgetary reasons most of the times. And uh, like you mentioned, I mean, many times the sales team would prefer that those budgets to be spent on licenses versus on services. Um, and, and that's a fine line that you always have to walk. And as I mentioned earlier, and that's the reason why many times services could be offered or could be kind of thrown in sometimes depending on the tier of the customer or depending on the spend of the customer and as an encouragement to the customer uh, to expand with the company. And, and that's fine as long as that is it is recognized for what it is. Um, and but, you know, customers, once they see the value from services or consultants, they usually become more open and they start engaging with you more and more as you become their trusted advisors. It is usually the easiest when you introduce services upfront so that customers or, or the sales reps can bake them into the overall costs instead of springing up the services at a later, at a later time. In certain instances, we've actually made it a requirement to include a minimum set of training and consulting services into each contract because we know that the customers will not be successful without them. Uh, so we don't want to go through this back and forth process to justify the services later. So we just used to bake them upfront into the contract as something that would be required to use our platform. Got it. That's interesting. You talked about trusted advisor, right? Can you give other leaders and listeners of this show some inputs on, in your experience, how do you become that trusted advisor? Sure. Um, and I think a really important thing to become a trusted advisor is to have a consultative mindset. Uh, and having a consultative mindset comes uh, with asking the right type of questions you really need to have a holistic understanding of your customer, uh, the whys and the what's. So things like, why did they buy your product? What was their motivation uh, and drivers? And are they the right ones? What is their company culture? What are their goals? What are their fears? And what are their plans? And you know, how, does your, how do your products and your services fit into the big picture? So it's really important to have a good understanding of your customers and their uh, pain points and the problems that they're trying to solve, and then be able to connect the dots back to uh, your products and services, but also to your you know, overall learnings uh, that you've picked up, the way other customers use your products and services, the way they have seen success from them and how those learnings and success can be applied to these customers and to articulate that effectively. It's not only important to know it is also equally important to explain it uh, to the customers in a way that it makes sense for them and clearly articulates what's in it for them to follow your guidance and advice. So that, that's how you become a trusted advisor. And also very, very important is to be empathetic and to show integrity. Because I mean, at the end of the day, trust is everything. Those are some great tips, Chitra. Thank you. Now we go on to the next section, which is our rapid fire questions. Here's the first one. What's one habit that you picked up in 2020 that you will keep going in 2021? Well, uh, 
I think it's my love of art. So I actually started dabbling in painting uh, in 2020 and it was uh, pretty awesome because it was therapeutic. Um, it was a creative outlet for me. And you actually require uh, a lot of abilities that you use in customer success, like being able to connect the dots, being able to see the perspective. You really need a good attention to detail. Um, and at the end of it, you, you have something with you uh, that, that you can really enjoy throughout your life. So um, I think that's something that I really plan to continue because uh, a lot of good has come out of uh, this newly developed hobby. Nice. Do you actually showcase your art somewhere? Yes, in my house. <laughs> okay. I was wondering if there's like an online avenue where we could actually check them out. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, I'm, I'm still in a very, very amateur stage, but uh, well, maybe, um, maybe next year. <laughs> Okay, we'll wait for you to post them on Instagram and give us the handle for us to check it out at some point. <laughs> Here's our next question. What's one book that you recently enjoyed reading? Sure. So there's this book called uh, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And I don't know if you've, if you've read it. So Chris Voss uh, was a hostage negotiator with the FBI. And this book is basically a masterclass in negotiation. And it talks about, so never split the difference basically beats that never meet in the middle. <laughs> because as per, as per the book, that really doesn't get anybody anything. You know, you're, you're not super happy, your customers are not super happy. So you really have to get to a point where uh, you can make the best possible deal. <laughs> And how do you do that is something that he talks about. He talks about uh, real life examples from FBI, how he negotiated, uh, you know, sometimes with even um, terrorists um, and got out of difficult situations and how those learnings can be applied in business. So um, I, I, it's, it's highly recommended and uh, a book that um, I got a lot from. Nice. I've read it too and I actually enjoyed it. What's your goal for 2021? So 2021, I think after everything that we have gone through in 2020, um, my goal is to aim for mindfulness and gratitude in my daily life um, and try to promote a sense of well-being in my, in my environment because uh, now more than ever, I think um, we really have to look uh, at our surroundings and figure out you know, how, do, how do we ensure uh, that people feel good about themselves. Um, so that's something that uh, I try to do by taking, taking uh, you know, courses, uh, or mindfulness courses, by doing yoga, uh, and, and basically trying to guide people down that path uh, if they wish to go, go that way. Uh, I've had my kids, even my kids uh, enrolled in certain uh, breathing and yoga classes, and uh, I can see the benefit already. So that's something that uh, definitely I'm looking forward to doing more in uh, 2021. Great. So I have one question here. You know, as one of the leaders I know who's taken up a new role during the pandemic, I'm wondering, you know, was there a team already in place that you had to inherit? How easy was it to establish rapport with this team? And what sort of tips or inputs do you have around, you know, how, how you're doing all of this? Yeah, so at Couchbase, basically the customer success team is uh, is very, very small at this point of time. Uh, we have around like three people in the team, that's it. And all of us are responsible for different regions. So um, as I speak, I am uh, in the process of actually uh, figuring out uh, the CS practice 
uh, in my region from scratch. And that involves uh, directly working with our customers, getting an understanding of the different operational models that we have with our customers, because we have a pretty robust uh, services offering. Um, obviously we have a support organization, we have a field engineering organization, and um, how does customer success management uh, fit into the bigger picture and how do we build a strategy to show our customers the value from customer success when they haven't been exposed to that uh, before uh, in my current company. And, and yes, I mean, I actually joined the company uh, during the pandemic. Uh, so I haven't met um, any anyone in the company live so far. So all my interactions have been via web conference, both with my teammates uh, and with my customers. So uh, that has that, that has definitely been an interesting experience, but I can't I can't wait to get on the road and actually meet people live and meet my customers live because nothing beats that. Absolutely, I'm sure. We now come to the last section of the interview, which is you know questions from our Rocket Lane Slack community and from our audience on Twitter. So here's the first one. When it comes to hiring for your team, what qualities do you give most weightage to? I would definitely give um, weightage uh, to their consultative skills. Um, and again, for a few different reasons, um, I inherently believe that being a good consultant uh, brings some valuable skills to the table uh, to become a customer success manager because uh, it's a combination, like I said, of asking the right questions, being able to connect the dots uh, and being uh, empathetic to your customers' needs, putting yourself in, in their shoes um, and not just the customer's shoes, right? I mean, um, a consultative mindset is a mindset. So that's something that, you know, as you uh, practice those skills more and more become part of your inherent personality. And when that happens, I think uh, you only bring good things to not only your customers, but to your internal teams as well, uh, to your teammates uh, as well, in terms of how you collaborate with them and how you work with them. So that is uh, definitely a skill that I rate highly when I am doing my hiring. All right. Uh, here's an interesting question. As an organization matures, you have leaders for customer services and professional services. Do you believe PS should report into the CS leadership? And do you believe it should all align at a CRO level? What's your take on this? I think it's helpful uh, for um, the post-sales organization uh, essentially to roll up to a single leader. We could call that organization customer success organization, or we could call it uh, field engineering or uh, whatever. But I think to ensure cohesiveness, to ensure a common unified goal of making your customers successful, um, it helps to keep these functions uh, under the same umbrella. Okay, here's another good one. Post packaging, when you're selling the services offerings, is there a separate budget you've seen for promoting these consulting services? Yeah, so the budget for promoting your service offerings typically would come out of your overall customer success organizational budget. And, uh, you know, you have to basically decide how much time to spend promoting them uh, and in, in which ways. Um, for example, I mean, at a bare minimum, uh, when we launch new service offerings, um, and especially when we launch exhaustive uh, uh, service offerings. Uh, we do press releases and we do announcements on our blogs and uh, uh, in, in, in different uh, 
publications as we see fit where we think that um, it would add value. But really most of the promotion happens via uh, our websites, our blogs, our sales team, and our services uh, team members actually talking to the customers about these service offerings uh, where they see fit. Makes a lot of sense, Chitra. Uh, that was our last question for today's show. So that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for all your great answers. It was great having you at the launch station. Absolutely. It was great. Uh, thanks for having me.